I would like to invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we will look at verses 11 and 12. Probably one of the most misunderstood men in all of Christian history is the great reformer, John Calvin. Many Christians will meet him in heaven who said they would never be a Calvinist and find out what a great guy he actually was and is. And who knows, might even have to explain a few things. He's mischaracterized. He's caricatured. One historian wrote that he is seen as, quote, strict, moralistic, legalistic, authoritarian, severe, cold, logical, that the first point of the five points of Calvinism is God hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. And yet the great 16th century reformer, as proven by his sermons, by his writings, by his love for the church, he had a very tender and a humble and a well-developed understanding of what it means to live the Christian life. In the 1540s, John Calvin began to seal his personal letters with a wax seal with his initials. And next to his initials was a picture of an outstretched hand holding a heart. It was a symbol of his own fervent love for the Lord as he freely offered his heart to the Lord in worship and in service. For Calvin, the Christian life wasn't just emotional spirituality which is disconnected from theology and neither was it merely truth disconnected from spiritual fervor and from an intense love for God. The Christian life for Calvin was the head and the heart, both knowledge and love, that to know God is to love God, and to love God is to know God. In fact, that was his theological definition of godliness, knowing and loving God. But he took this understanding a step further even by insisting that the Christian life involves much more than just understanding and confessing the gospel of Christ. He wrote that the Christian life demands that the true believer embrace the gospel with a whole heart, with everything that you are, and that your lives are radically transformed by the gospel. He wrote this, quote, True doctrine must enter our heart and pass into our daily living and so transform us into itself that it may not be unfruitful for us. In other words, Calvin characterized the Christian life, the gospel, as being life-transforming, life-altering, life-consuming. And that the subsequent Christian life after salvation is characterized by piety, by holiness, by godliness. But this godliness, as he defined the, the head and the heart, this devotion of head and heart to the worship, to the service of the living God by means of the gospel, for Calvin, this was never something passive. This was never something reactive. Godliness was something to aggressively pursue, to take hold of, to fight for. And he said that there's a fight involved because we're in the midst of a spiritual battle. And it's this idea of the Christian life as a battle, something we fight for. This is the central feature of the brief text we're looking at this morning in which the Apostle Paul will tell Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Now, just to recall our context here, Timothy has been sent by Paul as the apostolic representative to the church at Ephesus. 
And it was to deal with false teaching, deal with false teachers creeping into the church. And it's been stomach-churning work for Timothy. He's confronting false teachers. He's stopping them. He's qualifying new elders. He's coming in to shake things up. In seminary, we were taught, don't go to a church to shake things up. Just, Just do this slowly. Well, Timothy was given the opposite. You get in there and shake everything up. And now Paul gives Timothy an inspiring call to be set apart, to be different, to fulfill the work of the ministry. And if Paul were preaching this, I think we could imagine his voice swelling at this point of decision, this point of recommissioning for Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. These are some of the most inspiring words ever penned to the minister of the gospel. And in these words, Paul stimulates and motivates and rouses Timothy to stay the course, to keep going, to fight the good fight. Now, Paul is directing these admonitions to Timothy personally. But we should also recall that Paul told Timothy in chapter 4, verse 15, to immerse himself in the truth so that all might see his progress in the faith. And what's the point of that? Chapter 4, verse 12, so that he could set an example. And so because of Timothy being set up as an example to the whole church, we're on very, very safe ground to take whatever Paul commands to Timothy in regard to the gospel ministry and apply it church-wide. And this is so important for us. Lord willing, in a matter of weeks, we'll be in our new facility on White Lane. I don't know if you figured this out. On Easter Sunday, there were 480 people here. And so I don't know where you all are on a regular Sunday. I haven't figured that out yet. (laughs) But because of this, because the Lord has been so gracious to us, we're endeavoring to recall some basic principles of sound ecclesiology, of how the church is supposed to function, how we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to behave. And so as we walk through 1 Timothy 4, 5, and 6, we've been calling this just well done, good and faithful church, how we're to be. And each week we focused on one aspect of obedience, and today I'd like to focus on the good and faithful church as one that is fighting the good fight. We're to be a church that's fighting the good fight. For Timothy in particular, fighting the good fight of the faith, the biblical gospel, the propositional truth of Scripture, This was a call to a ministry focus intensely fixated on holiness, on sound doctrine. But the principles that we can glean from Paul's epic recommissioning of Timothy, they're clearly applicable to us. And why is that? Because you're part of the battle. Your life is part of the battle. I'd like to divide our time this morning into two sections, one kind of introductory and one main section. First, I want to talk about what is the nature of the fight. What is the nature of the fight? And second, I'd like to spend the lion's share of our time answering the question, what are the weapons of the fight? What are the weapons of the fight? Well, first of all, just by way of introduction, let's talk about the question, what is the nature of the fight? What is the nature of this battle? Timothy was experiencing the many enemies of shepherding Christ's church. The fight for Timothy had many foes. And these could be broadly applied to many different church situations. 
There would be his own sinfulness. That's the battle that every shepherd faces. There's the battle against Satan himself and his schemes. There's the battle against the outside world, which hates truth and loves sin. There's the battle against the sluggish and lifeless Christians who don't seem to learn or seem to grow in the Lord. And for every two steps forward they take, they take three back. There's the battle of even entire churches which have settled into apathy and and spiritual indifference, like they're just waiting to die. There's the battle of church members who struggle with idolatry of things, things like personal comfort, a worldly agenda for the church, arrogance based on lack of knowledge. The most dangerous church member is the one who doesn't know what he doesn't know. There's the battle against entire church cultures which struggle with idolatry of the church itself instead of, instead of endeavoring to please Christ, that the institution of the church becomes more important than the Lord she serves. And of course, in Timothy's case, there was the battle against leadership, which was off course and off track. And I could say this by way of introduction, it is a dangerous, perilous place to be to not realize that there is a spiritual battle and you're in it. You're in it. If you don't realize this, it makes you vulnerable, in fact, to being a pawn for the enemy. There is a spiritual battle and you're in it. On Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas as they were sent out by the church of Antioch in Syria, as they were on their way back home, they went back through a couple of cities in which they had planted churches. They went through Lystra and Iconium and they went there to, to check on the new believers that they had left behind and listen to their teaching agenda as they were going back through Lystra and Iconium. Acts 14.22 records that they were, quote, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, listen to this, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is filled with battles. In the second letter to Timothy, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all, all, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said it very bluntly in Matthew 10, 38. He said, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so I would very clearly point out here that in our text, Paul does not tell Timothy to cruise the good cruise of the faith. He doesn't say, sip the refreshing beverage of the faith. He doesn't say, taste the delicious appetizers of the faith. He doesn't say, ride the fun theme park of the faith. And he certainly doesn't say, watch the beautiful sunset of the faith. No, it's fight the good fight of the faith. How's that for an evangelism technique? How would you like to get in the fight of your life for the rest of your life? (laughs) Fight the good fight. We get our word agonize. There's a tremendous focus and discipline and conviction. There's exertion, there's effort, there's exhaustion. And it's a good fight. It's noble, it's excellent, it's worthy, it's necessary. And listen, if the Christian life weren't a battle, the Apostle Paul wouldn't have warned us in Ephesians 10, or Ephesians 6 rather, verses 10 through 12 with key words like, be strong in the Lord, put on the armor of God, stand against the schemes of the devil, that we're in a spiritual wrestling match, and it's a cosmic match, it's an invisible match, it's a spiritual battle. In many cases, the weapon used against you is simply you, yourself and your own sin. In some cases, Satan is hands off, like they don't even need my help to mess things up. 
The spiritual battle is real. You thinking it's not won't change that fact. It's real. It is personal. It is not theoretical. It is not for other people. It is for you. The battle is in the church of Jesus Christ. The battle is in our church. Why is that? Because Satan hates the bride of Christ. He particularly hates the bride of Christ when she is attempting to obey the head. And he will stop at nothing to deceive and to dishonor and to derail. That is the nature of the fight. It's here. It's real. I'd like to spend the rest of our time on the weapons of the fight. Because God has not saved you from your sin by the merciful cross of Christ only to have you unarmed and helpless in a spiritual battle which is the Christian life. He has armed you. What are the weapons of the fight? God has given us a, a closet full, an array of weapons, an armory. And in fact, this text, just in two short verses, is like opening the spiritual armory and finding out you have every weapon possible. You're incredibly well supplied, incredibly well armed. So I'd like to walk through a few weapons of the fight. The first weapon of the fight, and we'll just give these simple names. The first weapon of the fight we'll call separation. Separation. This is a restatement of Timothy's commission, not only to the gospel ministry in general, but to the mission to the church at Ephesus in particular. And now Paul urges Timothy to separate himself from having anything whatsoever in common with the false teachers, the bad elders who are harming the church. When we saw this in the prior verses, Paul gives this clear contrast. But as for you, he's to flee the things that the false teachers love. He's to run to the things that the false teachers despise. In fact, this phrase, but as for you, it's even more simple in Greek. It's just, but you. There's a simplicity to it. And this is the same call to you, the same call to me. But you, but as for you. This is the foundation of the believer in Christ. You're different. You're set apart. You no longer live your life. Christ lives your life. You're different. You live the covenant-keeping life that God called you to in Christ. Oh, we have a wonderful illustration of this concept in the, in the entirety of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. In Leviticus 20, verse 26, God told Israel that one of the purposes of the law of God was to separate them from the peoples around them as, as him having one nation that's his, that they belong to him, they're separate. And the law is filled with aspects unique to Israel as opposed to any other nation. Dietary laws, uh, being forbidden from intermarrying with other nations. Designations of certain animals, some as clean, most as unclean. What is that showing? It's showing the theme of separation. God was continually reminding Israel to be separate, to be different, to be set apart. Now, to be very clear, the law of sojourners, the law of foreigners allowed others to become worshipers of Yahweh, others to join in God's covenant with Israel. But Israel's main problem throughout their history was rather than the surrounding nations being impacted by Israel as a faithful, separate people unto Yahweh, Israel instead was continually trying to become like everybody else. And this is so important. This example is so clear for us because your witness, your testimony, and even your assurance of salvation... They're rendered completely powerless if your life looks no different than your neighbor's. Your witness is worthless. 
Your testimony is powerless and your assurance of salvation is dubious at best. You want to know how to live the Christian life? It's very simple. You continually ask this question. Why am I doing what I am doing? And is this based on a biblical principle or on a worldly so-called wisdom? That's the Christian life. But as for you, this is the first weapon in the fight, separation. There's a second weapon of the fight we'll call identification. Identification. Paul tells Timothy, but as for you, O man of God. Man of God is a distinctive title in both Old and New Testaments for the called out servant of God who is to proclaim his word, to represent God to God's people by means of proclamation of revelation from God in the New Testament context, the revelation already given in Scripture. But this identification by Paul, it's a reminder to Timothy of his role. It's a reminder to Timothy of his function. That Timothy belongs to no one except to God. He is God's man on the ground, so to speak. This title here brings to surface the seriousness. It brings the sobriety of the gospel ministry. It is no flippant thing to be called as a man of God. Devoting the whole of your life to the service of Christ in the church. It is both a spiritual blessing and a spiritual danger. It's both a privilege and a burden. It's a calling filled with tremendous joy and at times with overwhelming sorrow. But for Timothy, especially with the extra little interjection here, oh, man of God, this serves as a reminder that he serves God and God alone, that he ultimately answers to no man, but to Jesus Christ, the head of the church. You know, there's no place in scripture that says that a pastor will appear before his church to answer to them. The shepherds of the church will appear before Christ to answer to him. Paul reminds Timothy of his identification. Why? To keep his compass Godward. To keep pointed straight heavenward. But based on taking Timothy as an example, it is reasonable in the spirit of an example to substitute, but as for you, for all of us, O child of the living God. What is your identification You have an identity. Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. That's a phenomenal thought. The very next verse gives the logical conclusion that if you're a child of God, then you're heirs of God, you're fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. You inherit what He has. Can, Can you even wrap your mind around that? I can't. This is the glory of praying to our heavenly Father. We don't pray to a distant God that is nameless. We pray to a a, a God that we're allowed to call Father. He's a Father in heaven who treats you as his own child, all because of Christ's work on the cross to bring your pardon from sin. In fact, a few verses later in Romans 8, verse 21, we're told that the children of God receive from their Father freedom from sin and corruption as well as tremendous glory. Or if I could put it this way, if you are a child of God and if you're a fellow heir with Christ and if the Father has granted you freedom from sin as well as tremendous glory, do you realize that because of Christ's payment for sin which satisfied the wrath of God against you and because Romans 8.29 says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers, do you realize that just like God the Father said of Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased? 
that because of Christ, he equally can say of you, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. That is a tremendous life-altering truth. And get this. Listen carefully. Paul said in Galatians 4, 6, and 7, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is such an important statement. This is a Trinitarian statement saying that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're all God. And he gives a nuance. And this nuance is so key, so important. It is the spirit of the Son of God in your heart that cries out, Abba, Daddy, Father. What does this mean? It means that it's not only because of Jesus that you address God as Father. It is Jesus in you that addresses God as Father. That's what it means to be in union with Christ. That when you say Father, it is Jesus saying Father. I can't wrap my mind around that, but we're promised that. That's your identity. Your identification. There's a third weapon in the fight we'll call evasion. Evasion. After highlighting the disgusting selfishness of the false teachers, their love of money, their temptations, their snares, their ruin, their destruction, their worldly cravings and lusts, their envy, their dissension, their slander, their evil suspicions, their causing of friction between people in the church, depraved men, deprived of the truth. Paul tells Timothy, flee these things. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a word that means escape. Run, take flight, get away. But this fleeing of these sinful things isn't all alone. The definition of a vibrant and well-fought Christian life isn't just fleeing from sin. Ultimately, that turns into legalism. This is part of what some have called the flee and pursue formula of Paul. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul again tells Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. By the way, this is the essence, this is the core of biblical preaching, it is the core of biblical counseling. Flee and pursue. Flee the sin which hampers your walk with the Lord and pursue instead all that promotes obedience, all that promotes worship. This is the famous put off and put on pattern of the Christian life. Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt. Colossians 3.9, put off the old self with his practices. But Romans 13.14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Colossians 3.12, listen to this, put on then as God's chosen ones, eclectoi, elect ones, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And what's the most famous putting on in the Bible and highly related to our text here? Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God. Verse 14, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, put on the readiness given by the gospel. So what is this flee and pursue formula? Can I put it this way? It's what you, you stop doing and what you start doing. That's it. 
You take the sin you're trying to defeat and you intentionally run from it. And you take the replacement truth and action and intentionally pursue it. Our third weapon in the fight is evasion. The fourth weapon in the fight we'll call manifestation. Manifestation. Now Paul gives Timothy a list of things to pursue, things to put on. The first is righteousness. Now this begins what in Greek literature is called a virtue list. This is a a feature very typical in Greek ethical teaching. It's something that the readers would be familiar with. And of course, this list here is inspired by the Holy Spirit using something that the readers were already familiar with. But it's an interesting and useful device. It allows the writer to, to wrap great, tremendous concepts into one small, concise package that's just exploding with meaning. It's used by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. It's used by him in 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. This virtue list is used by other New Testament writers, Peter and 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. And so here we begin, we go down this track of this virtue list, and Paul begins with the pursuit of righteousness. Now, what does this mean? Because the word righteousness is loaded, has lots of different nuances to it. In much of Paul's writings, righteousness can refer to the verdict of justification given by God to the Christian. This is the legal status of the one who's placed his faith in Christ. That's the heavenly meaning, we might call it. But here, Paul's meaning is more earthy, more earthly. He's speaking here of moral uprightness. He's speaking of a life that's lived reflecting the status of having been given the imputed righteousness of Christ, of taking seriously the law of Christ and living by it, of living a life that is a manifestation of the righteousness of Christ, of demonstrating what Christ has done. In Philippians 1, 9 through 11, Paul tells the Philippian church that he's praying for their love to abound with knowledge and all discernment, meaning wisdom, acumen. Why does he say this? In verse 10, he says that they might approve what is excellent so as to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's his reason. It's not a requirement to achieve some sort of sinless perfection, but it's the goal of purity. It's the goal of blamelessness. Motivated by what? Paul says, by the day of Christ. By being on your best behavior, humble obedience, joyful obedience, and being eager to do so in light of eventually seeing Christ. That that when you see Christ, you don't want, as it were, to be caught with your hand in the cookie jar of sin. And what does he call this approving what is excellent and being pure and blameless? Philippians 1.11, he calls it being filled with the fruit of righteousness. The manifestation of righteousness. The positional righteousness given in Christ is now being manifested in your life. And how do you pursue righteousness? James and James 1 gives a, a classic answer, a classic command that he gives in James 1.22. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The context of James's command is the preached word of God. What's happening right now? That's the context in James 1. In fact, in the previous verse, he exhorts the believer, quote, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And he summarizes his wish for the Christian in verse 25 by saying that you should not be a a hearer who forgets, but be a doer who acts. 
The preached word of God is the implanted word. This is an important concept. It's the implanted word. It's a word that means something that's innate, something that's second nature, something that's natural to you. That the implanted word is not just the passive act of kind of being in the same room as a sermon being preached. It's the act of receiving the word of God at depth with meekness because meekness is required to question your own heart and to be a doer who acts. Righteousness must be pursued. It must be proactively acted upon, not merely hearing about it. There's an inherent, what am I going to do? Versus just hearing this information and hoping that it automatically changes you. Our fourth weapon we'll call manifestation. The fifth weapon of the fight we'll call orientation. Orientation. In his virtue list now, as things get going here, Paul continues by telling Timothy to pursue godliness. This is an even broader term than righteousness. It's, a, it's an important term in the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. It's similar, but it's not identical to the idea of righteousness. At its basic meaning, it speaks of what you believe having consequences for how you behave, similar again to the fruit of righteousness, But unless Paul is simply re-emphasizing righteousness, we ought to focus more on the nuance of difference here. And there there is one. Remember, Paul is writing to Timothy, to a church that's very familiar with what he's saying here. He actually uses a term that we translate godliness that every reader of 1 Timothy would understand. They would know this. Not from a scriptural standpoint, but from their own culture. In their culture in Ephesus, right there in that city, The cult of Artemis, or Diana, was the primary religion of Ephesus, and they utilized the very same Greek term, translated godliness, to speak of what they called, quote, a person's reverence for the manifest goddess Artemis. This is from an Ephesian inscription dated just a few years after Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Now, ironically, Artemis never manifested herself because she doesn't exist, But the concept of godliness, they would have understood this, the readers of 1 Timothy, they would have understood that it's connected to a right response to the manifestation of God, to God making himself known. How has God made himself known? He's made himself known in his word and he's made himself known, known most importantly through his son, Jesus Christ. What does this mean? What is this right response? The root, the basic response is that of worship, that of paying the obligation and the right respect and the reverence. As a matter of fact, interestingly, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same Greek word is used several times, such as Proverbs 1.7, Isaiah 11.2, Isaiah 33.6, and it's used to translate the Hebrew word fear when speaking of being rightly related to God. Same word used in the Septuagint, Proverbs 1.7, the Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So what's the nuanced difference here between righteousness and godliness? Here it is. Godliness speaks of covenant loyalty. There's a loyalty because he has made covenant with you in Christ. It speaks even of an emotional dominance which leads to worship. That your life is centered on the idea of worship. Personal worship before God. The gathered worship of the church. And behavioral worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2, the worship of the sacrifice of your life. 
In Acts 10, verse 2, the Roman centurion Cornelius was called a man who feared God. What was the evidence? His actions, he gave generously to the poor, and his worship, he, quote, prayed continually to God. Now, we've already seen the term godliness repeatedly just here in chapter 6. It's clear that godliness is impossible without a correct understanding of the knowledge of the gospel. Chapter 6, verse 3, Paul speaks of the teaching that accords with godliness as opposed to that which is not, that falsehood, false teaching can't possibly produce godliness, can't produce worship, can't produce true worship. Chapter 6, verse 5, Paul uses godliness with somewhat of of air quotes to speak of the person who presents a false piety in in the name of gaining a following, even gaining money. But as we saw last week, true godliness is paired with true contentment because the believer's hope isn't in the things of this world, but in Christ. So what is godliness? It is an orientation. That your life is oriented around covenant loyalty. Your life is oriented around worship. Your life is viewed through the lens of faith in Christ. That's the automatic default. That's the automatic filter. That's the automatic motivation is you're always seeking after godliness. You, you never wake up as a Christian one morning and say, you know, I, I think today's Tuesday. I think this would be a good day to think about godliness. No, that's your orientation. That You wake up every morning saying, how can I be godly today? How can I worship God today? How can I worship in my actions, in my personal time with the Lord and gathering with the church? It's automatic. That's your filter. Our fifth weapon, orientation. There's a sixth weapon of the fight we'll call determination. Determination. Now there's a familiar trio that I kind of hate to break up here, so I'm not going to. We'll keep this familiar trio together. Paul tells Timothy to pursue faith, love, and steadfastness. Faith, love, and steadfastness. These are the outworkings of godliness. This is the manifestation of godliness. This is the evidence that your life is oriented toward worship. Now, we often see faith and love together, sometimes teamed up with hope, which is similar to steadfastness. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, we're told to put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We also see this trio here, faith, love, and steadfastness, teamed up in 2 Timothy 3.10. It's important to remember the context for Timothy. Remember, he's in a conflict every day. He's in a conflict with the opponents right within the church. And so what is he to pursue? Godliness manifested in faith, love, steadfastness. How do these work together? Faith, believing God, trusting the Lord. Love, avoiding bitterness, avoiding anger, avoiding letting self-righteous resentment and, and hostility set in, which believe me, that can happen to shepherds. Instead, to remember what Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 5, that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, that Timothy is to be motivated by faith, trusting the Lord that the outcome will be God's will, love for those that he's dealing with. And then we cap off that trio by saying steadfastness, which really is just kind of the capper. It's, it's determination, perseverance, What does it mean to persevere? What does it mean to be steadfast? It's not complex. Just keep going. Keep going. You have to have steadfastness to support faith and love in the the face of challenges and problems and adversity. 
And you might ask, well, how do you keep going? How do I do that? One day at a time. That's it. Did you know there's no place in Scripture that ever asks you to live tomorrow? You just live today. How often my dad used to tell me when I was a kid, you have to just live one day at a time. I never had a clue what he was talking about. When you tell a nine-year-old this, like, well, I am. I live in the moment anyway. I have an ice cream cone. I'm not even thinking about the next minute, much less tomorrow. What does that mean in reality? And now I see the wisdom of him telling me this so many times. If you allow your mind to be consumed with the past, you're prone to bitterness, resentment, and depression. If you allow your mind to be consumed with the future in this life, you're prone to worry, anxiety, and discontentment. Isn't there something glorious about seeing a five-year-old with an ice cream cone and they're living in that moment? They don't care what happened a minute ago and they don't care what happens a minute from now. And you kind of look at that and say, I kind of like to live that way. That's what we're to do. That's what being steadfast means. Live today. And so today, we operate in faith, trusting the Lord. We operate in love, demonstrating grace. And we operate in steadfastness. Just keep going. Do you know that every one of you have made it through every day so far? You have. And the last day you have on this earth, by God's grace, will be the best one. Do you realize, if you would stop to think about it, that you won't, if I can use a double negative, you won't actually not make it through a day? All you have to do is make it to the end and count the blessings from that day and do that again. Our sixth weapon, determination. There's a seventh weapon of the fight. We'll call this one relaxation. Relaxation. I'm not talking about getting an annual pass to Disney. That would be questionable anyway now. That's another issue. Stay with me on this one. Paul ends his virtue list by telling Timothy to pursue gentleness. Gentleness. Meekness. Mildness. Gentleness of temper. Now, now this is not avoiding conflict. It's not cowardice. But it's an approachability. Now, why would this be important for Timothy? I mean, Paul has sent Timothy into the mouth of the lion here to confront and to make some difficult decisions. But for Timothy, gentleness was a necessary attitude that he might, by all possible means, facilitate repentance, facilitate reconciliation, to give some of the wayward leaders of the Ephesian church the opportunity to make a course correction This implies very strongly that Timothy was to give a choice. Repent and humble yourself back to sound doctrine or be removed like Alexander and Hymenaeus in chapter 1. And so Timothy's approach, while being strong in content, strong in effort, strong in conviction, was to be gentle in manner. That yes, Timothy's called to protect the church as a whole. That's a major calling for being a shepherd. But there should be attempts at gentleness, attempts to restore the wayward. This is the same root word that Peter uses to tell a wife married to a disobedient husband, disobedient to the Lord, in 1 Peter 3, 4, that she's to put on a gentle and quiet spirit. That's in contrast to to scolding and badgering and pestering a husband into righteous behavior. But why would we label this weapon relaxation? Listen carefully. A gentleness, a meekness implies a deep-seated trust in the overarching sovereignty of God 
and allows you to be gentle, allows you to be meek. Why? Because you're not trying to use your own power to force a positive outcome in any situation. Instead, Timothy was to present these choices to the wayward leaders with humility, with meekness, with gentleness. This wasn't him going to a wayward leader and saying, you better get straight or else. This is him going to a wayward leader and saying, I'd like to show you the truth and I'd like to show you where you're in error and it's my prayer that you'll respond to this. It's my prayer that we'll be brothers in Christ in victory together. Now, why is this a weapon in the fight of the Christian life? This is a powerful weapon because you cannot be gentle without relinquishing trust in yourself without relinquishing trust in your own power, in your own ability. Gentleness demonstrates that you know who has the real power. And we would call that relaxation. You don't have to make everything happen in your own power. The seventh weapon, relaxation. There's an eighth weapon we'll call concentration. And things are going to just heat up now. Concentration. Paul tells Timothy in verse 12 to take hold of the eternal life to which you're called. Take hold of the eternal life. Paul is not saying that Timothy needs to get saved. That's already, that's already done. What he's saying is get a tight grip on the future realities of eternal life. Or as we often say, live in light of eternity. I warned earlier that we're not to be consumed with the future of this life, but we are to be consumed with the future of the life to come. Be consumed with that. For Timothy... Paul was urging him to see all of his ministry as eternal work. Paul told the Colossian church in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Paul reminds us in Philippians 3, 20, that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life is now. It's begun. It it isn't reaching its full glory yet. There's a little thing you have to die, but that's not a big deal. But it hasn't reached its full glory, but it's begun now. Eternal life is the invisible reality of all of our salvation blessings. They're invisible, but they're realities nonetheless. I love what Paul says in Romans 8, beginning in verse 24. He says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Can I put it this way? Train yourself to think about eternity every single day. Imagine the earth ruled by Jesus Christ and all corruption gone. Imagine the recreated heavens and earth in all their glory. Imagine seeing a city called New Jerusalem that on just one level is two million square miles. Imagine the throne room of God as described in Ezekiel chapter 1, in Revelation chapter 4, in Isaiah chapter 6. Think on the implications of eternity. All things made right. All relationships fixed. All vindication given by the Lord. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more tears. No more anguish. Can you even fathom what it is to have no more pain? A couple of years ago, we did an entire book on taking hold of eternal life. We called it Preparing for Heaven. The whole point of the book is to be more eternally minded. It's been a blessing to me to receive some emails from relatives of, of dying Christians who read together Preparing for Heaven. 
But can I tell you this? We're all dying, right? Unless you're under the age of 18, your body is giving you the impression that you're still developing. But after that, it's downhill. (laughs) So prepare now. You know what's glorious is a 20-year-old who lives in light of heaven. Look to the sapphire skies of the heavenly realm. Look to the myriads of angels shouting, holy, holy, holy. Look to the church of Jesus Christ singing the song of the Lamb of God uproariously. Look to a new earth that is everything that this earth was meant to be, but perfected and glorified an entire world like the Garden of Eden. That is a weapon. Your concentration on eternity. The eighth weapon of the fight, concentration. There's a ninth weapon, origination. We'll call this one origination. Paul tells Timothy to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. To which you were called. This is the effective and the perfect and the powerful call of God to salvation. Paul writes of this call in Romans 8.30 that, quote, those whom he predestined, he also called. What does this word mean? It means to call, to summon, to beckon. It is God saying vocally, come here, be mine. This is an absolutely glorious aspect of our salvation in Christ. God was not some neutral, disinterested God upon which you accidentally stumbled and and begged to be given attention, begged to be noticed, begged to be spotted by God. Quite the opposite. When you didn't even know you had need of a Savior, God was calling out to you. He was beckoning to you. He was summoning you. And nobody says no to that. Theologians call this the effectual call of God, meaning that it's effective 100% of the time, that nobody that God calls is ever unsaved. That when God calls someone to salvation in Christ, that person always repents and receives the Savior. Every single time. What grace and what kindness that a holy God would call out to unholy sinners who don't even want to hear it in the first place. This is the call of the Savior in Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts. This is the call of Christ to the Samaritan woman by the well in John 4 to drink of the living water of salvation of Christ. This is the revelation of God to the soul to open the previously blinded spiritual eyes to see God in Christ. This is the call of 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Let light, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You had blinded eyes and God came and he called your name and he opened them and the first thing you saw was Jesus. And Paul here is telling Timothy to take hold of the eternal life to which he has been called, that he's been summoned, that he's been beckoned. This is the origination of your salvation in Christ. And why is this a weapon in fighting the good fight, unharkening back to that day, that moment in time, that mysterious time where in the heart of your hearts God called you? Why is that a weapon? Because being well grounded in the fact that God initiated your salvation, that salvation was a monergistic work, a God alone work, then your confidence and your assurance can never be in you. It can only be in God. Our ninth weapon is origination. We'll call the tenth weapon of the fight commemoration. Commemoration. 
when the weapon of origination, of placing confidence in God's call of salvation, when it's in full use, one of the ways this happens is to remember the commemoration or the celebration of God's saving work of grace. Paul here reminds Timothy that he made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, what is this speaking of? Now, some feel this is speaking of two different events, both Timothy's ordination to the gospel ministry, which did happen in public, did happen in the context of the church, and of his public confession of salvation in Christ. And there's good arguments for that. I, I tend, for me, though, to believe this is only referring to Timothy's public baptism and his public confession of faith. It says that the good confession is about what? It's about eternal life. I believe this was his public confession of faith at his baptism. So Paul is appealing to Timothy's initial public confession, his profession of faith made in front of the church at his baptism. The larger context here, of course, is that Paul is strengthening Timothy in, for the fight of the gospel ministry, that the, his confession of faith is a cornerstone, it's a foundation upon which to build that strength. A confession of of faith, a public profession in the presence of many witnesses. By the way, not just any witnesses. Uh, you don't take a bathtub with you somewhere in front of Walmart and say, can I get a few people here? I'm going to baptize myself and tell you about Jesus. That's nice if you want to use it as a weird evangelistic technique, I suppose. But that's not a true profession of faith. The true witnesses are the true church led by qualified shepherds. Those are the witnesses. This is a proclamation of covenant loyalty. This profession of faith where you stand in front of those brothers and sisters in Christ and you say, I have been crucified with Christ. I have died with Him. I have been buried with Him. I have been raised with Him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's a profession of faith. That's why we don't do mass baptisms with no testimonies. That's just a bath. That's not baptism. What is Paul telling Timothy? He's telling him, go back to that special day. Hearken back. Close your eyes and think on that day when you stood in front of the church and said, I will follow Jesus Christ. Remember that good confession. When God commands you to fight the good fight of the faith, he has supplied you with an arsenal of weaponry to do so. Hasn't he? Was Timothy successful? Was his bid to root out false teachers and purify the church in Ephesus of error, was it fruitful? Thirty years later, Jesus Christ himself addressed the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, and the, the church admittedly had a new problem. They had abandoned the first love that they had had when the church was planted decades earlier. But what about the false teachers? What about the church-killing cancer of false doctrine? Was Timothy successful on that front? Jesus told the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The church at Ephesus became a church that would not budge on truth, would not budge on the gospel. What would we say to Timothy? Well done. Mission accomplished. What about Timothy himself? Did he fight the good fight? We saw in chapter 5 that 
Paul prescribed that he take a little wine for his stomach because he was having stomach problems. Why? Because when you're turning a church upside down, everybody's stomach gets hurt. Gets hurt. Did he fight the good fight? Timothy stayed in Ephesus. He stayed there for the rest of his life, in fact. He oversaw all the churches there. Many historians think right up, in fact, almost to the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. Idolatry and pagan worship was the prevailing culture of Ephesus. We have no doubt that Timothy thought often about his father in the faith, Paul, long since now gone home to heaven as a martyr about how in Paul's final letter to Timothy, he proclaimed, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. About how courageous Paul was for the gospel, the beatings he endured, the humiliation, the diligence to preach the gospel. About how on one day, Paul had willingly laid his head on an executioner's block on a road outside of Rome and been beheaded as his final act of service to Christ on earth. On one occasion in Ephesus, a huge festival was planned to celebrate the worship of a pagan god, and Timothy, as a man in his 70s, still with the impact of his years with Paul and and the admonition ringing in his heart, certainly, Timothy chose to make a stand. He said, this is it. Strong tradition in early church history sources tell us that Timothy made a public stand against pagan worship. He cried out the true gospel and that men should repent and turn to the one true living God. And they beat him with clubs and they dragged him outside the city and they stoned him to death. What is a Christ-pleasing church filled with? Believers who will fight the good fight. I have one prayer for Grace Bible Church. We've prayed this often. I have a lot of prayers, but this is my main one. That may we be faithful until Christ returns. That's it. But you have to fight the good fight. You have to. Let's pray that you would do so. Our Father, we aspire to that call. We aspire to the greatness of the church as she was meant to be. We aspire to the greatness of the bride of Christ to be gleaming in our righteousness and godliness and in our faith and in our love and in our steadfastness and in our gentleness. We aspire to these things, Lord, in just a few short weeks by your grace. And if you would so will it, and Christ has not brought us home yet, you'll move us to our new facility. And Lord, While we're thankful, I think there's a part of us that ought to be shaking in our boots that you have entrusted us with a trust. You have entrusted us with a mission. May we be faithful. May we fight the good fight. May we do so as a church in full unity and in love for our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.